Mark 12, 13 to 17. All right, so this morning's reading is about tax, one of our favourite subjects. Paying the imperial tax to Caesar. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this reasonably well-known text, uh, we ask that you would help us to see something new. Would you help us to see what you want us to see this morning? God, would you change us, make us more like you, and help us to understand the grace you have to offer for us? Amen. I'm trying to be environmentally uh, sensitive, and I am preaching for the first time from a tablet which uh, could go well, it could go bad, but you guys are my guinea pigs for this morning. Um, so bear with me. Uh, now this is a very well-known uh, passage, and uh, it's an interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, and it's recorded in three of the four Gospels. Now at first glance, it could just be, or does appear to be, about paying taxes and being a law-abiding citizen. But there is actually a lot more going on in this passage, and it reflects something really beautiful about God, and also something beautiful about ourselves that uh, God reveals about us, and how it helps us to do what he asks us to do, how to pay our taxes, even when it's hard to pay them, because let's be honest, none of us like parting with our money. Before I dig into this passage, let me just remind us where we've gone, or where we've been uh, in, this p in Mark's Gospel, because... Uh, this passage starts off with later they sent some of the Pharisees, which shows this is a part of a bigger series of events. We don't read this story in isolation. Jesus has entered Jerusalem on a donkey to a crowd announcing he is king, and they are sing, singing Hosanna, Hosanna. He then clears the temple, and he accuses the chief priests and teachers of the law allowing the for allowing the temple courts to become, in his words, a den of robbers exploiting the poor. So the chief priests and teachers of the law are trying to pin Jesus down uh, by asking whose authority he has to do things like this. And Jesus evades their question by asking them a question they themselves can't answer. They're beginning to get a bit mad. Already under their skin, Jesus makes things worse by speaking about the parable of the tenants. Raywin spoke on that one. Uh, fully aimed at them in a negative way. And realizing that they can't outwit Jesus on religious grounds, they then uh, team up in this passage with the Herodians in a political move. They're, a de they're in a desperate attempt to get Jesus trapped. So keep referring to this passage as I go. We read, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to catch Jesus in his words. Now the Herodians, who are they? They're a political party. Uh, they are Jews, but they have an allegiance to Herod, but they're aligned to the Roman authorities. 
So they wanted to see Herod's line on the throne. They didn't want to see a descendant of David on the throne. So they were opposed to the Jewish people and the other Jewish people in that way. And they were respected by the Romans. So they were in direct opposition to the Pharisees, theologically and politically. But the two groups were united in that they all wanted to see Jesus gone. So getting desperate to trap Jesus and get rid of them, the teachers of the law and the chief priests and the Pharisees, who don't normally get on with the Herodians, all teamed together to send uh, the Herodians and the Pharisees to Jesus to ask this question about taxes. Now, beginning with flattery, which is always an interesting way to start, uh, to get Jesus and the people around him to listen and to take an interest, they address Jesus with verse 14. Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. Nothing wrong with that yet. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? There's a couple of things to note here. Firstly, we can see their bent hearts. As the readers of this passage and the way that Mark has written it, we see that they admit Jesus' integrity, but they themselves have no integrity. They've set to catch Jesus, to trap him, and there is absolutely no integrity in this. Mark writes with such irony, and they really are the true hypocrites. Then they have uh, the question about tax. They actually ask it twice. The first time the question is asked, should we pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? And then they double down by asking it again by rephrasing the question. Should we pay or shouldn't we? In other words, just give us an answer, Jesus, a straight up answer, a yes or a no, not a counter question like you did when we asked you about your authority. They thought they were making Jesus land on a position and in this way they thought they could trap Jesus because if he said no they didn't have to pay the imperial tax he could be arrested very quickly by the Herodians for usurping the Roman law uh, because they would of course just go straight to the Roman authorities if he said yes he would lose the people who have had to live under this Roman oppression and pay these special taxes for 25 years it's helpful to understand a little bit more about this tax that they're talking about. See, Jerusalem and the rest of Judea, as you'll know, uh, hopefully by now, was under Roman rule. And there were all these taxes that they had to pay uh, in the Roman world. But this tax, this particular one that they're talking about, the imperial tax, was a payment demanded not of Roman citizens, but of subject people. So those who were not Romans, but who were forcibly under Roman rule. In other words, the Jewish people under Roman rule and oppression, not by choice, of course, and they were the ones who had to pay the taxes to be in that position. Pretty fun time, eh? It was a head tax, paying for the privilege of being a subject of Caesar. Therefore, it was a pretty bitter tax to pay. It wasn't a large tax. It was actually only uh, the equivalent of about 50 cents, so it was really small. But the principle, the symbolism of it, must have stung every time. Imagine if we'd been overtaken by another country, held under oppressive rule, and on top of our usual taxes, we also had to pay an extra tax to the oppressive ruler in, our, in the dominant country simply because we're now essentially theirs. That would be really hard to pay, wouldn't it? So this is a very politically hot potato uh, that they have come to Jesus with. Others had previously revolted against paying the tax to Caesar, and they had tried to avoid it, and they'd been assassinated because of it. They were putting Jesus in the same camp. They're trying to get him killed for the same reason. 
So that's the background to the tax. Let's read on to see what Jesus says in reply. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. So that's a picture of a denarius. It's not a great one, I'm afraid. We know what denariuses look like because we have them in museums. And Jesus asks, whose image is on it? And they rightly replied, Caesar. Like our coins feature our monarch's head on one side, so does theirs. So on the silver coin, we can see the face of Tiberius Caesar on the left with his big nose, uh, like we have the Queen's profile on ours. And I'm sure at some point soon we're going to see King Charles's side profile on our coins in circulation. So every time they paid this, ta- this tax or they used this coin, it was a constant reminder of their oppressive ruler right there in their hands. But not only that, the inscription said something worse to the Jewish people. You can kind of see it on the, on the right. The inscription translates to read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the god Augustus, Pontifus Maximus, high priest. So son of, son of the god Augustus, Pontifus Maximus, high priest. So in his hand, Jesus is holding a coin that declares this Roman ruler who is holding his people of Judea under oppression also claims to be king, son of God, high priest. For the Jewish people, this was not only politically terrible, but it was a religious anathema and outright blasphemy. This made paying the tax sting at a whole other level. So every time they had to handle this money, it reminded them of their oppression. They were essentially paying money to the Roman authorities. That was blasphemous visually, symbolically, and it went towards employing the Roman soldiers to occupy and oppress them. So when the religious leaders and Herodians are asking the question of Jesus, should we pay this or shouldn't we? Hopefully you can all see how loaded a question it was. And Mark does not fail to point out the irony here. Here is the true son of God, the true high priest, the true king, asked about whether he should endorse paying the tax to the Roman king, claiming the same titles as symbolized in his very hands. These people standing around him have heard Jesus. They've heard the disciples and they've even heard demons referring to himself as the son of God. They've heard him talking the kingdom of God language. They think they've really got Jesus trapped here. But Jesus is too clever for them. He doesn't give them a yes or no. He gives them a both and answer we read on then Jesus said to them give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's and they were amazed at him so in this object lesson before them the people are looking at two kingdoms the kingdom of Caesar is represented by this coin and the kingdom of God the kingdom of Caesar the Roman Imperial Emperor who has all the money in the world The coin is in fact Caesar's. He had them all made and minted with his own metal and resources so that they could, in fact, they did in fact belong to him, which is why Jesus can hold this blasphemous coin and tell the people to pay their taxes because it does belong to Caesar after all. Caesar rules with power, which he uses freely to oppress the people under him, demanding his subjects to serve him, to worship him. He calls himself king, son of God and high priest. He is a king with all the wealth, 
Okay, all the horses, all the soldiers, all the military protection. He is a king who would not have cared to know the names of his common people, let alone those who were oppressed under him. Prisoners were sent to the Colosseums to be mauled and humiliated in public spectacles as entertainment as they died. If you've been to the Colosseum in Rome, you will have been made aware of that. To be killed would be to lose his power, as he did later in AD 44. His successor would take up the throne. And then we have another kingdom. Here we have Jesus, also a king, the true son of God, the real high priest. But he is a direct contrast to Caesar. He leaves behind his power to serve the people he is oppressed by, mocked and then crucified by. He leaves behind all his riches, which are infinitely more than any earthly king could ever fathom. And he becomes a common man. And he doesn't even have a denarius on his person to do the object lesson with. He has to ask one to be brought forward so he can show um, his answer. He doesn't have a single horse. He borrows a donkey when he needs one. He doesn't have military protection. He has a bunch of often confused disciples. He knows his people, each and every one of us, by name. He died on a cross, humiliated as a common criminal in a public spectacle to set prisoners free, giving us all the dignity we don't deserve. He died so that we could share in his riches of his glorious kingdom. His death would not end his reign, but it would defeat the powers of evil. This king is the one standing in front of the people that day. What a contrast. And his answer to give to Caesar what is Caesar's is to give the money, the physical coins that belong to him, The people are indeed to do what the law required of them, but that is all. They are not to give their worship to Caesar, not to put their hope in him. His instruction next, his next instruction follows closely on, give to God what belongs to God. So what does this mean? If Caesar's is marked by what has his face on it, what has his image on it, like the coins, what has God's image on them and therefore belong to them? Us, people. All of us are created in God's image, bearing God's own image. We see that in Genesis 1. God said, let us make man in our own image. We are the Imago Dei. We, therefore, belong to God. Thank goodness we don't have Chris Hipkins or any other prime minister's image imprinted on us. We have God's image on us. And as Christ followers, our lives need to reflect this reality. Yes, we are to give our money to Caesar. We are to pay our taxes. Uh, To the government, we are to be law-abiding citizens, but we are to give our allegiance, our lives, our all to God alone. And as humans, we often have absolute uh, answers. We like a yes-no answer. But to be Christians is actually called to be people who have recognized we belong to God. We are his image bearers, and we have to live in this tension amidst a world where we have governments and authorities who do not live in accordance to God's laws. And we really need wisdom to know how to honour both these in power, to be law-abiding citizens, but also to ex- recognise the extent of, our, of giving our lives to God. Yes, we need to pay our taxes, even if we don't agree with what we're spending our money on. Even if they are heading in directions, codifying behaviours that do not align with the teachings of Jesus. If we think we have it bad paying taxes in our current rates and in our current system, 
We certainly don't have it as bad as these people in Jesus' audience. As followers of Christ, we need to be honest in our dealings, in our taxes, in the way we interact with the world around us. But that is all. We don't need to put our hope in the government. We, don't, we put our hope in the Lord alone, entrusting our lives to God, who has given it all for us to be part of his inheritance. God is not like Caesar. He does not demand taxes from us. He's not oppressing us. He does require our lives because he has bought us at a price. It's normal to struggle paying taxes. I get it, especially when, as I said before, many governments spend money on things and practices that are often in direct contrast to the biblical views of life. But what else can we expect from the government? Give me one country where the government is operating in a fully scripturally aligned way. You won't find any. The Bible doesn't actually give us much instruction for the government. It says at most the government should provide justice. We can't expect it to do more. Although, of course, we can pray that members of the parliament and people in power will serve the Lord Jesus. So how does this practically look like for us today as I land this? For some of us, we only read the first part of Jesus' answer and we kind of pat ourselves on the back because we're doing a good job of paying our taxes. We're doing um, a good job of being a law-abiding citizen. We're doing what the government requires of us. But are we reading the second part of that answer that Jesus gives? Are we doing the second thing that Jesus commands? Are we living the rest of our lives as a sacrifice and giving it back to God? Are we giving back to him what is truly his? The whole of ourselves, our hopes, our security, our trust, the way we live our lives, the way we make decisions. Are we giving him our time or are we Sunday-only Christians? We are like that coin, not only created by God and minted by his resources, but also imprinted with God's own image on us. Are we declaring with our lives, also like that coin should, that he is our Lord and that we belong to him? Do we understand that we belong to him, made in his image, made to be spent, bringing glory to his name? My prayer is that we would all understand a bit more of how much we belong to God. My prayer is that we would understand how much he has paid to give us true life. And as we understand this, that we would give a bit more of our lives to God than we are currently. Let's ask the Lord to show us an area of our lives where we may not have given it fully to the Lord. Now there may be others of us here who feel like since we belong to God and his kingdom, we don't need to pay our taxes to Caesar. It's corrupt. Why should we? We try and find loopholes and skip the system. We wouldn't come up squeaky clean if we were investigated. Jesus says quite clearly in this passage, we must give to our leaders what is required of us, even if we don't agree with everything they do. For some of us, we have a deep-seated belief that we know what's best, and while we do pay our taxes, we struggle because inwardly, every time, we genuinely believe it's all going to waste. This is a common general assumption but what we can sometimes forget is God is above the government. He holds the whole world in his hands. We sing about that in Sunday school. And he works in ways we don't understand. He can turn what is intended for evil or harm into the good for his purposes. Romans 8:28 is such a well-known verse speaking that truth, all things made for the glory of his name. Do you know, I'm sure many of us standing at the cross 
would have tried to rip the spears out of the Romans' hands if we were to step back in time <coughs> as they executed Jesus. But that very act of evil from the Romans, God turned into the saving grace for the whole world. What was meant for evil was turned into the glory and victory of God. And not everything the government does is evil. I'm not saying it does. It does a lot of amazing things, and we're so grateful we have our government. We can't see the whole story. We can't see the big picture. And sometimes paying our taxes to a government we can't understand in every way is a simple act of obedience and trust in God. We need to trust that God knows what he's doing. Trust that God will provide for us, regardless of what money comes in and goes out of our hands. And trust that money is not everything. Money is not our security. Money is not what makes us happy. For some of us today, we might need to examine the hold we have allowed money to take in our lives. And finally, but not least importantly, let's pray for our leaders, our government, people in leadership. Let's pray that the Lord places faithful Christians in places of governance, leadership, and important roles to bring about his kingdom, his kingdom purposes in the world. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters already in those places to stand firm in their allegiance to the Lord amidst their workplaces, bringing glory to his name. And just as I close, let's remember the king we serve when we look at Jesus. Let's look at the king we belong to. Because in looking what he has given to us, when we see the grace offered to us, when we see the type of king that he is and what he gave up for us in contrast to Caesar or any other ruler, this is what humbles us. And it's the only thing that will truly enable us to live our lives in humble obedience. Only by seeing the gift and the grace of Jesus will we be able to do this, genuinely giving our lives to him as he deserves and also at the same time honouring our government amidst the world we currently live in. We might not understand how the Lord is moving, but let's put our trust in him and not in Caesar. Let's pray.